Welcome back to the Columbia Center for Contemporary Critical Thought in New York City. I'm Bernard Harcourt, and this is our podcast, Critical Theory, and it's our fourth episode. This year at the Center, we're focusing on the ideas and manifestos of worldly philosophers that ignited revolution. The seminar is called Revolution 1313, and as our seventh seminar, we've been focusing on George Jackson and his prison writings. Today, we're joined by Paul Redd, a member of the Short Corridor Collective at Pelican Bay State Prison, who was incarcerated for 46 years and released on May 21, 2020. He joins us from Oakland, California. This episode is going to explore George Jackson's prison writings in his book, Soledad Brother and Blood in My Eyes, and look at the effect of those writings uh, within the prison. We'll be paying particular attention to the short corridor collective that was formed in the solitary confinement unit, uh, what's called the secured housing unit, the SHU, at Pelican Bay State Prison. The men in the collective read the works of George Jackson, of Eldridge Cleaver, of Asata Shakur, Bobby Sands, of Michel Foucault and Howard Zinn, and that reading and their debates and discussions really transformed the men in the shoe. Uh, Sitawa Jama, Todd Ashker, Arturo Castellanos, Antonio Gillen, and together they formed a collective joined by other men, Paul Redd and others, and critically examined these texts, debated them, and reconceptualized their condition in isolation. And that ultimately led to the largest prison hunger strike in history and actions to abolish solitary confinement in California. It led to a number of hunger strikes, including in 2013, as I said, the largest prison hunger strike with 30,000 women and men across California engaging in a hunger strike. It also led to an end of hostilities within the prisons and, and new prison writings as the men in the Short Corridor Collective worked together to formalize solidarity between racial groups engaged in hunger strike in opposition to the uh, fracture of the movements. Paul Redd is one of the original signatories of the document, the agreement to end hostilities, was participated in the hunger strikes, and, uh, and we have him today as a guest. Uh, let me introduce him first, and then uh, let, let's listen to him, because uh, his, his testimony about what, what happened on the Short Corridor Collective is, is simply amazing. Uh, Paul Redd uh, has been known for a long time for his legal activism within the prison. Paul spent a total of 46 years behind bars, and of those, about 35 of those years, he was incarcerated in solitary confinement in multiple uh, shoes, security housing units uh, in California prisons. He was known to be one of the top jailhouse lawyers in California, and he was released on May 21, 2020. Uh, under the California 1170 laws, once District Attorney Chesa Boudin authorized the judge to recall his sentence. He was able to walk a free man with no parole uh, as his murder conviction was vacated, reduced to manslaughter, and he was given credit for time served. 
Paul's activism extended all the way back to the at least to the 1970s. He was part of the 1977 Wright versus Enomoto class action, a lawsuit that combated the California Department of Corrections living conditions and repressive policies around administrative segregation. As a form of retaliation for that, he was then sent to Folsom State Prison, where he concentrated his efforts on combating the injustices there. At Folsom, he worked with other incarcerated people to write declarations and have the facility included as part of the class action lawsuit. And over the past decade, he participated in the three historical California prison hunger strikes in 2011 and 2013, and was one of the 16 representatives to sign the End of Hostilities Agreement. He remains committed to getting those released he left behind in prison and is currently working to train law students and other attorneys on how to best assist those who are still behind bars. Welcome, Paul Red to Revolution 1313 on George Jackson and Prison Writings. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, let's start by some background on how you ended up on the short corridor uh, at Pelican Bay State, where you'd been before, and what led to that. Uh, hold on one on second. Sure, sure, sure. Yeah, I'm to cut this off because somebody else called me. One second. No worries. California State Prison, Los Angeles County, Lancaster, California. Pelican Bay. Yeah, what? Yeah, what? Yeah, what? Yeah, what? Yeah, you Yeah, what? 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 Yeah, let me cut it off so I don't get no more calls. Okay, okay. So you were in Pelican Bay, sorry, I meant in the shoe, right? Um, right, but I started, when I, I first came to prison in 76. 76, okay. Yeah, and the first time I got put in uh, in the hole was in 70, uh, 77. Okay. In fact, it was uh, August, August 28th, 1977. Uh, for some reason, uh, prison officials always, when it come come time of August, they always try to lock up a lot of uh, blacks because of you know George Jackson, right? So um, and Attica too, right? Exactly, right. But you know, here in California, you know, basically you'd be George because um, this is where we created the Black August. Right. That was that was a birth in San Quentin on the uh, on the yard, Black August. Okay. But anyway, um, like I say, I first uh, started doing uh, time in solitary confinement in uh, August of uh, 1977, and then from there, uh, I got involved with a, a major uh, class action lawsuit called Wright versus Modem. Okay. And that's when I started getting interested in doing legal work. And as I'm doing legal work, uh, people start giving me the little title jailhouse lawyer. Right. 
You know what I'm saying? And as a result of that, I became a thorn in prison official side. So they will retaliate against me for my legal work and helping other people uh, fight. Right, right. And uh, so over the years, uh, I get out the shoe. Uh, they snatched me up, put me back in the shoe. Uh, finally, in 83, I was transferred, 82, I was transferred to Old Folsom Prison. Okay. Uh, I remained in the shoe uh, there all the way until 86. Actually, yeah, the end of 85, I was released out the shoe uh, as a result of being instrumental in helping stopping this racial war that was going on in Folsom that lasted over three years. Um, that they had the warden that used to be in DVI where I was came there as a result of uh, the governor, Duke Major. And I contacted him uh, and told him some prisoners like to talk amongst each other to help in the little racial war in the general population. He said, man, he said, Paul, I have no problem with that. Never harmed prisoners talking to each other. So as a result of uh, he allowing us to talk, um, people was going back and forth to the shoes. And ultimately, uh, all of us agreed to bring in, help bring it into the little racial war. And they started letting us out uh, the shoe. Mm -hmm. uh, again, that, that didn't last too long for me because I was being retaliated for embarrassing wardens and them. So they immediately uh, threw me back in the hole, put a, a trumped up charge, uh, a murder investigation on me to justify putting me in the hole. And then they tried to transfer me uh, out of the prison real quick, uh, which that didn't work, but they tried. Mm -hmm. uh, from there, uh, when they built uh, Corkin Prison, a uh, shoe, I was transferred to Corker Shoe in 88. Uh, actually, uh, 89, January of 89, I was transferred to Corker Shoe. And then from there, I stayed there, going back and forth, following rid, rid of Hapus Corpus on my due process, being locked up in the hole. And uh, I won my release, but unfortunately, prison officials in Folsom in New Folsom Prison, didn't like it, so they ended up sending me to Pelican Bay uh, on a bus overnight. <laughs> just threw me on the bus, just added me wow. to a bus list wow, and shipped me up there. So I stayed there from uh, 95, I mean, from 90 all the way to uh, I won my release through that hunger strike uh, through the DRB in uh, 2014, okay. finally got out of the shoe. So basically, I did over uh, over 20, um, 25 years up there in Pelican Bay, mm. you know, but basically in, in isolation uh, in the shoe, in yeah, solitary well, in the shoe. Yeah, well, while what kept my mind, my mind uh, focused, I was doing a lot of legal work. Uh, I wrote poetry book, uh, did artwork, uh, always thought outside of prison, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know? So I didn't allow prison officials and the guards and them to set me up, but they was, you know, used to set a lot of people up. 
uh, to where they can cause you to act out. Mm -hmm. You know, I used to ignore a lot of the stuff. They used to open the cell doors with you and other races, hoping that the other prisoner would come and attack you or you attack them. Uh, and I, I didn't bite into it. The other prison, when they door or yard door open, they didn't bite into it neither. So that kind of pissed prison officials off. Mm -hmm. You know, other people uh, fell for that trap. And again, you know, I used to write numerous of 602s, complain about the conditions. Uh, some of them 602s would get trashed or, you know, just rubber step, rubber stamp denied. Mm -hmm. uh, and ultimately, you know, uh, they started talking about taking our TVs from us. And uh, I used to say, well, you know, you, you can start with mine right now. You can unplug it right now. They said, well, Red, why are you trying to, you know, why you don't want the TV? I said, well, if I don't have a TV in my cell, then I can focus more on you guys. <laughs> you know, I said, well, we thought. So some of the prison union uh, took that and uh, contacted Sacramento to the director. Hey, won't you let you guys have a TV? They're not bothering nobody with their TV. <laughs> so... They took that off the table. Then next thing I know, guards them showed up my door. Hey, Red, uh, they moving you, moving you to the short quarter. I was in C facility at the time. I said the short quarter. I said, well, yeah, let me pack my property. Oh, we we we're packing for you. Uh, we got to go now, you know. And that's when we went to that short quarter. And you know, from there, uh, the four main reps was able to have dialogue with each other and uh, pass the word around about considering this hunger strike, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So again, that's where that all started at. Now, how come how come they moved you to the short corridor then? I mean, because what, were the conditions more um, uh, confined in the short corridor or you were already in the shoe, right? Or We, we, we was already in the shoe. Uh, we was already confined it. Somebody, some officials them had this bright idea that they wanted to isolate the so-called prison uh, prisoners who had a lot of influence in prison. Okay. So they decided to put us all in the short court, which was one of the most stupidest ideas that they had. Mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. if you, and that's why they, you know, when that hunger strike started, they started trying to accuse attorneys of being the one to passing the messages uh, for this hunger strike. And that wasn't true. They mm -hmm. created the conditions for the hunger strike because we were able to talk to each other through the door, through the toilet, over the walls. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's how the word spread it. Right. Right. You know, so how did that work? How did it work to talk to someone else? I mean, I take it these are uh, cinder blocked uh, cells, right? Uh, right. You, gotta, probably, you don't you don't have bars in the front. You probably got a metal door, right? You got the metal door with all the little holes, peripherator holes in the door. Right. Right. So how how were people able to communicate? Well, one way, uh, if they let you out to go to yard. Yeah. You got a yard next to you, uh -huh. so it, uh, you can yell over the wall, okay. or you can go to the over there to the door. If, you, for example, I was an F uh, uh, E pod, 
Okay. So those in F pod, if they went to the yard, I can go to my door, they can go to the door, and we can talk right there through the door. Okay. okay. Guards didn't like that. You know, they they write us up for that. Okay. Because we was talking through the yard, saying we communicating gang gang activity. Right. But they would never write down what the conversation be about. Okay. You know what I'm saying? So they just use that to say, uh, Red is out there talking on the yard with a inmate Williams and uh they talking about gang activities. Then when you get to write up and you ask the hearing officer, well, can you ask the officer what were we saying? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. he didn't put that in the report. Mm-hmm. He just said we talking gang activity. So obvious if he can put gang activity, then he know what we were saying. Right. You know, but they still find you guilty. Right. Yeah, I know the disciplinaries, man. Yeah. And then other ways we talk, uh, like I say, it was a, a block wall, but, you know, I had a fence o- over the top of your head. Okay. So, you know, you could look up the sky, but you can yell over to the next person that's on the other yard. Uh-huh. You can uh-huh. talk that way. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Uh, also, because the way the, the design was built, uh, it was cheap. It had cracks in the wall. So the cracks in the wall, you can slide a piece of paper through the crack to the other side. Oh, wow. Okay. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, if you ever had a tsunami or earthquake up there, that entire shoe complex prison probably going to collapse. Right. Because when it used to rain real hard, all the water used to come through the the skylights and stuff, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. inside your your pod, what they call a unit. Right, right. Right in the middle of it. Right. And um, were you and then I, I, I read a lot about how in the short corridor um, they were you were able to pass texts, I mean, books or, or, or pages or something so that people could read stuff. Is that was that um, that people were actually reading and having conversations about some of the works, um, some of the prison writings, uh, some George Jackson or, or I or Michel Foucault was his writings were being read. How, how did, did that, is that, is that how that, how did that work exactly? Well, Which, I mean, uh, it was different ways, dude. I mean, like if you was at your grill gate and like I say, I was in E pod and you had F pod. So if I was out at the grill gate and somebody in E pod was out at the grill gate, sometimes the guards, didn't lock them grill gates. So the grill gates be open. So I could take a book and reach around and hand it to the person. Okay. Next to next to me. Okay. Okay. Uh other times uh we had bookstores that would mail books to us. Okay. So, you know, and sometimes those books was free. Okay. So that's another way people was able to get various uh material, uh Michelle uh Alexander, okay. Uh, okay. George Jackson, because you had the little red bookstore. Uh, you had Marcus book. You had different places that would mail books in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, now, prison officials uh, started, you know, banning a lot of books like Blood of My Eyes, Solidad. They started using that as gang activities, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Um, even the book... Um, New Mexico, Santa Fe, New Mexico, that big old ride down there, the hate factory. 
They used to lie that book in there, but when they found out what it was about, they immediately banned it, you know? Okay, okay. So are those books still banned now, do you know? Yeah, they're still banned. George Jackson is banned. Still banned. But it's funny because in certain other prisons, uh-huh. that book can come in. Okay. But say, for example, like Sol- uh, Pelican Bay, uh, it's still banned. Still banned. Okay. Still banned. Did you have access to it yourself when you were at Pelican? Oh, Thomas. Uh, like uh, Blood in My Eyes or uh, Blood in My Eye or Soldad Brother? Yeah, but when they come search your cell, they're yeah. confiscated. Okay. You know, because it was it was banned. But they let it in. Right, right. You know, newspapers, certain newspapers was being banned. I remember one time, uh, 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 Billy X, the Panther, uh, sent me the Panther paper. And they confiscated and gave me a notice say, uh, uh, this paper is being confiscated because uh, it's promote gang activity. And then I say promote gang activity. They say, well, the Black Panther was a street gang. I said, okay, then prove that to me. Yeah, really. Prove that. <laughs> then they say, well, Hugo Pinnell had an article in that uh, particular issue and he's validated as gang members. So you gang members uh, can't have access to reading articles uh, published uh, by other people. I said, well, I get the Oakland Tribune and I get other newspapers that have articles in there uh, about different people who have may have been validated, but yet y'all allowed them to come in. Right. You know, so it, it was an arbitrary policy on all that. You know, if you, the way your thinking was, that's the way uh, these prison guards, as well as these IGI, who was uh, gang investigators, uh, would come and you know do all that kind of stuff. Um, if you if you wore a black armband during August, you promoting gang activities. Mm-hmm. But then they later start wearing the black armband around their badges, right? You know, commemorate certain guards. Right. who uh, died, et cetera. Right. But in the early years, it was all right for us to do that until some of the uh, the me- mentality of officials and prison guards started changing and that CPOA got real strong. And that's when they started pushing uh, all these restrictions on us. Right. Right. Do did I did I read that there were kind of like reading groups and on the short corridor that like you discuss like the books you were reading in a kind of form of a reading group kind of like discussion? Well, we uh, many of us done that long before Pelican Bay was ever thought of, mm-hmm. you know, because we used to have those yards where we used to take books out to the yard okay. uh, and, and read. Uh, so, like I say, in Pelican Bay. Uh, the yards was isolated. The only time you went to the yard with somebody, if you had a cellmate, you know what I'm saying? So it would be difficult to talk through the yard door or talk over the wall, yell over the wall to talk about a particular chapter in a book. Not saying we didn't do that. We did. Some of us did do that. We may read something, go out and have some debate about it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know? Right. What were some of the most formative uh, books do you, you feel kind of that uh, that shaped the way 
you thought and also that kind of like brought helped bring about the, the hunger strike? Well, the hunger strike, um, like I say, the four main reps read Bobby Sands book uh, about the hunger strike in uh, Ireland. Uh, Ireland. And that's where people got the idea of, man, we need to do this, do a hunger strike. Uh -huh. But you know, a lot, a lot of the books I read, I read Mousy Tone, I read um, Man Child in the Promised Land, I done read uh, Revolution Suicide. Um, you know, I done, I done read thousands of books over the years, and what helped change me was when you was reading about your history and your culture, mm -hmm. that gave you a, a sense of self pride. Mm -hmm. And you seen people who went through those struggles, who died uh, doing those struggles, uh, and you was proud of that, you know. So you like, hey man, we need to change these conditions in here, and you know. And then you know, one of the biggest quotes that I liked to the uh, by George when he said, "Settle your quarrels, come together." Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we echo that. Uh, during the hunger strike, that was, in fact, uh, that was part of uh, our in the hostility that we signed that uh, in the hostility agreement. You know right. what I'm saying? Right. And sharing with people, may settle your part, come together. You know, uh, put your difference to the side because if you sit up here and allow the administration to play us against each other, we're never going to accomplish nothing. You know, and and that helped create that thirty thousand prisoners that supported us during that hunger strike, you know? But a lot of us always know in order to change the conditions of prisons, you have to come together because as long as prison officials and guards can create that wedge in between and have you fighting and bigger with each other, then nothing's ever gonna be accomplished. You know, and we, we you know, Africans, we was fighting a bigger battle because we had to fight the administration. Then we had to fight racism in the prison amongst various prisoners. Mm -hmm. You know, so our, our our struggle was a little more impacted because of the different uh, forces, I would say, that led up to us spending a lot of energy fighting on this battle. You've done a lot of law reading as well, basically. Oh, yes. Years, huh? Yes. I mean, I that must be. Know. What's it like? What's how do you feel is like the difference between like reading a case and reading, you know, George Jackson, Soledad Brother or something? Because I always well, feel it's like so different. Go ahead. Sorry. Well, I mean, it was different, but you remember George Jackson also read law books. Right. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. And I think when you mix. You know, I just seen individuals just read straight uh, revolutionary books, uh, PLO and all that kind of stuff. And I see uh, sometimes people, I've seen people lose their mind because they have read certain militant books to where they actually uh, had the mental breakdown. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think it's good that you can mix you're reading up with a real uh, revolutionary book, with uh, fiction books, as well as with uh, uh, nonfiction books. 
which is important. Right. You know? Right. Yeah. So, yeah. Albert Woodfox talks about that. Actually, the first book he remembers and that he, um, that really marked him was, was, was fiction. It, it was, it was a story about moving from the South to the North and, and, um, but it, it was, it was a, a, a novel uh, that really, that really moved him. So I think that's right. I mean, there are the different kind of genres will impact you in different kind of ways. Yeah. yeah. And, it, and it allows your mind to be creative as well. Right. You know, and you know, like, like my book, my, my mother gave me the first novel to read when I was like seven years. That was Man Child in the Promised Land by Claude Brown. Okay. And I, I never understood why she gave me that book uh, at that age. It wasn't until years later while I was in prison, I read it some more. In fact, I probably read it over a uh, hundred times. And then it finally clicked in it because, you know, my mother, you know, had a lot of that, that wise wisdom where she used to have these visions and, you know. So I think my mother knew the direction I was going in, that lifestyle that I was living, right? Mm-hmm. And I think she saw that in me as a kid because she used to always uh, say, boy, you know, you're going to be a lawyer one day. I think you're going to be like Perry Mason because she love watching Perry Mason, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. But anyway, when I got to prison and read that book more, then it started dawning on me how my mother uh, kind of saw my life falling off track and while in prison, getting back on track because Reading that book, Man and Child in the Promised Land, here you look, a person who grew up in the South, New York, been through all the little reform uh, detentions, ultimately went to the prison, and ultimately uh, became a, well, a well-known, a highly respected psychologist. Mm-hmm. So he turned his life around mm-hmm. as a result of going through this prison system mm-hmm. and using that as the real education that changed his life. Right. And that's where I kind of like look and say, well, you know what? That's what I would like my legacy to see. Not somebody who had lived a lifestyle in, in a criminal sense, but somebody who went to prison while in prison, changed his life around and got out and done some positive things. Right. So if you if you can show that and people, it can motivate people, that's what you want to do. You know what I'm saying? And right. George, even in the book, uh, done that through his writing mm-hmm. to motivate people uh, where people can also uh, fight on the, the legal side to win. You know what yeah. I'm saying? Uh, to create these kind of changes that help uh, free more people. You right. know, Rochelle McGee, uh, who's one of the, the Marin County with uh, Jonathan Jackson, he was my selling. So, oh, really? Yeah, he was my cellie in uh, New Folsom. So we used to always talk, you know? And wow. um, he was a brilliant lawyer, jailhouse lawyer. Was you he know? a jailhouse lawyer as well? Yeah, that's yeah. where he started at. Okay. You know? And he's still in right now today, which he should be out. But right. again, we used to go over uh, legal issues. He used to give me his little uh, strategies on how to litigate certain things. You know, mm-hmm. and uh, I admired him, you know, because he got a brilliant mind. He ain't got a lot of people out. Unfortunately, he ain't been able to use that legal skill to get himself out. 
right. because of the politics. Right. The case is in uh, the politics behind this case, you know. Now you were you were released. Um, how how many years ago were you released, and um, how did that come about? Well, I was released on uh, May twenty first, twenty twenty. Okay. And how that come? I went. To, I've been to the parole board like fourteen times. Right. Uh, the last last denial was in June, uh, June eighteenth. Uh, June uh, 2018, and uh, when I went to the board, uh, one of the commission commissioners uh, on the board, unbeknown to me at the time, that our mediation team, she had she had went public and said anybody participating in the hunger strike would never get found suitable by her. So our mediation team used to go to Sacramento protesting her statement because they didn't want her getting uh, confirmed. Well, it was enough. Uh, our media convinced enough politicians to not uh, confirm her, uh, her her next term on, on the parole board. And I guess they convinced her to go ahead and uh, resign on, on in good terms. Okay. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. so the, the at the time I went to the parole board, I'm not knowing that this is her last day there. And then she tell me, she said, well, Mr. Red, you know, actually we should have found you suitable for parole, but you got a high risk and that need to be redone so you can get a your lower or moderate. And I'm thinking in my head, well, if you know, uh, yeah, she said, because they didn't consider your youth factors when you came because you was a youth when you came into prison. So they didn't consider all that. And if they consider that, then it's going to lower your risk factor. And I'm saying in my head, well, if you know all this, why don't you say, well, I'm going to postpone this board here, refer you back to the, uh, the site so they can go ahead and do another assessment, you know? So anyway, uh, when they denied me, uh, a couple of cops that was in the board with me, that came and told me, she, you know, one of the, the deputy uh, DA, she wanted, um, I mean, not the DA, the other uh, commissioner, she wanted to find you suitable. Uh, but the the main uh, uh, commissioner uh, didn't want to find you suitable. And plus, that was her last day. And they said, you'll come back in three years. So Mike Snitaker, who him and his wife have been my attorneys, uh man, since the early uh 80s, they didn't want you to send me a lot of the law books to read, uh help me uh t- uh go through the paralegal, uh take my paralegal certificate as well as send me them daily journals, you know. So they was kind of instrumental for over the years uh to get me where I'm at today. So uh they also had brought in a well-known psychologist uh, back in um, 90, 98. And they put on a hell of a, a hell of a fight at the parole board for me. But anyway, uh, Mike uh, found out I had got denied. He came to visit me. He said, Paul, he said, I'm going to go down, I'm going to go to the San Francisco Public Defender and ask them to... Uh, take your case under a Franklin hearing, you know, because the Franklin, uh, Franklin hearing applied to you because you were the youth. 
So it would allow you to bring all your use factors and then hopefully get you a new hearing. Well, he came back. He said, man, he was kind of pissed off. He said, you know what, man? We gonna, me and Lisa are going to go ahead and uh, work on our work on your case again ourselves. Uh, the public defender felt that a Franklin hearing wouldn't do nothing for you. Hmm. Well, two days later, Danielle Harris from the public defender came to visit me. Okay. She said, Mr. Red, I got good news. I got bad news. Which one you want first? I said, I've always been used to taking the bad news first. He said, well, the bad news is we're we not going to do a Franklin hearing. Uh, you've been in prison far too long. Chester Bodine is the DA over there in our, in our county. And what we're going to do is file an 1170 motion with his office asking him uh, to recall your sitting. You know, we're going to see, see what's going on. So she left. And uh, next thing I know, she wrote a letter to his office. Uh, one of the deputy uh, DAs over there wrote a letter to the judge saying, hey, we're we giving you authorization to recall Mr. Red's uh, sentence. And I'm like, wow. So, like, uh, we may be going forward on that. Next thing I know after that, uh, uh, Danielle contacted me and said, we got a hearing date uh, for the judge uh, to look at your case. We're going to see what's happening. So it looks like, you know, uh, we might be able to walk you out of prison. Wow. You know, so uh, right before the hearing, they the deputy uh, attorney, uh, the deputy DA, she contacted Danielle Harris. She said, tell Mr. Red, I'm willing to release him from prison, but I need for him to, one, uh, admit to this crime. I'm still going to let him go, admit to this crime. And. He's, and he's going to be on a parole. So Danielle called up to Vacaville where I was at, and uh, she spoke to me. I told Danielle, I said, check it out, Danielle. I've been in prison over 47 years. I've never admitted to this crime because I didn't do it. Of course, I would love to go home. But if, if it means, I told Danielle, I said, Danielle, tell her I would love to go home. But if it means admitted to this crime that I didn't commit, then I'd rather die in prison. Hmm. So she said, I understand that. And I said, as far as parole, I say, my parole, I shouldn't have no parole. You know what I'm saying? So anyway, uh, she went and relayed the, mes the message to her. And then we had the sentencing hearing. And the judge was talking about, uh, they did it on the conference phone. And the judge was saying, hey, Mr. Red, um, here I'm here today for 1170 hearing. Uh, through the, uh, the district attorney's office uh, looking at the case. So she asked anybody if they have anything to say before she pronounced sentence. And uh, my attorney, you know, spoke of, you know, there was no evidence to convict me of this crime, no D DNA, no fluorescent area, all this, you know. And uh, it was uh, only one uh, co-defendant who claimed that Mr. Red committed this crime in exchange. That person uh, was given a deal, served no time. So then the DA had asked DA, uh, she had anything to say. She said, uh, Mr. Red case is very disturbing. It's a case that 
there was no evidence to really convict him of this crime. Mm -hmm. And um, we're going to refer this case to our innocent project here in the DA's office and uh, to look at look at this case again, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was kind of shocked because I just remember the day before the phone call, right? right? So in my mind, I said, okay, I know what happened. Well, she was convinced that I wasn't uh, convicted of this crime, wasn't guilty of this crime. But she needed to be sure that she was doing the right thing by throwing it out. Hey, I'm going to let him go anyway. Just cop to this. He's still going on. Right. But by me not doing that, that convinced, convinced her that, yeah, he didn't do this. You know what I'm saying? Right. So that's the way I was uh, looking at that. And uh, next thing I know, the judge said, Ms. Red, I'm uh, vacating your uh, first degree murder conviction, uh, reducing it to a manslaughter, credit for time, sir, no parole, and you to be released within five working days. Wow. And I, and I walked out of Vacaville within them five working days. Wow. Wow. That must have been something. Well, it was, you know, family members out there. Uh, Danielle came to pick me up. Uh, it was a newspaper reporter from uh, San Francisco Chronicle uh, that was covering the story. Mm -hmm. And uh, and the rest is a uh, history since I've been out. Right. Uh, you know, I, like I said, I've been doing a lot of work trying to get other people out of prison, mm -hmm. uh, working with transitional housing to help get people uh, formerly incarcerated mm -hmm. in transitional housing. I also teamed up recently uh, with a, a dentist nonprofit organization and we became in a partnership uh, and I created a flyer for that to raise money where he's willing to uh, do the work for formerly incarcerated who insurance companies don't cover crowns, implants, and all that stuff. We right. just recently done done a commercial. The commercial is being edited right now in order for us to raise funds on that, you know? Great. And, uh, I, I work with a few, yeah, and I work with a few other formerly incarcerated. We have done a food giveaway down at uh, the Farmery Park, giving out boxes, tons of food that was being donated to us uh, from Costco, we did a food uh, giveaway, a toy giveaway, uh, backpack giveaway, and mm -hmm. all that, you know. And you said that you um, had written a poetry, um, a, a book of, of poems uh, when you were, where was it, at Pelican? or, or... I, I had written two. I didn't get a chance to finish the, the second one because the second one, prison officials uh, confiscated it and used it because me, and one of the formerly incarcerated, we both was inside. We did uh, wrote, wrote wrote some poems, mm -hmm. and they used that because he was validated, and I was validated. They confiscated the book, saying we couldn't do that because we gang members. But right. yeah, my other book was published on my attorney's name uh, label. Okay, great. Do you have it with you here? Yeah, hold on a second. You want to read a poem from that? Well, yeah, I can read, read one of my favorite ones. Oh, that would be great. Top, from the top of my head. I was. I was what I was. I lived what I lived. I done what I done. I changed who I am to who I am now. Beautiful. Yeah. 
Thank you for sharing that. Mm. I wrote this other one about Pelican Bay. It's in it's in this book here. Okay. Uh, called Supermax. Okay, go for it. You're gonna read it for us? Yeah, I'm gonna read it. Okay, great, thanks. When we arrived here on the prison bus late, pulling through its as many gates, a guard aboard to give you his speech. This is your new home, Pelican Bay State Prison. Look to your right and your left behind you. You see them trees in the hills? That would be the last time you would ever see a tree. Look at the ground, see the dirt? That would be the last, last time you see dirt from this earth. We walked into this building looking like an underground bunker, but it's above ground. There's no windows to look out. There's no trees, no grass to watch. There's no dirt from the earth to feel. There's no sun nor moon to watch. There's no stars in the sky to count. There's no birds flying high above. Only their sound you hear to know they are near. A little thing in the outside world we once took for granted, we now is now against the rules called contraband in here. They call us the worst of the worst, but what did I do? I only stood up for my constitutional rights, exercising a petition before a court against an unwritten policy I saw as a setup to take my life. For that, I am transferred to Supermax Pelican Bay with no say to no man land far away from family and friends for the worst of the worst, they say. This place was designed to crush you, to break one's spirit, to destroy you mentally, take away your hopes and dreams for a better tomorrow, a better life. The First Amendment is supposed to guarantee you the right the petition of government for redress of prison grievances, and you are supposed to be protected from acts of retaliation in exercising this right. I have not lost my hopes nor vision, and my spirit remains strong because I know these prison officials are dead wrong. In the end, I will win. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I did. I'm a free man now. <laughs> Never thought I'd see that day, but hey, it came. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Congratulations. It's been wonderful talking to you, Paul. If you want to continue the conversation, you can join us on the blog at uh, Revolution 1313, uh, where we have a video of Paul Redd speaking with Albert Woodfox, the author of Solitary, and Daryl Robertson, a Harlem-based author, and Professor Joy James from Williams College, perhaps a leading authority on prison writings. Join us on the website at Revolution 1313. You can go there by clicking blogs, dot law dot columbia dot edu slash revolution thirteen thirteen slash seven dash thirteen
Thanks for joining us.